Well, we've read John chapter 1, and we're here to think about the, um, <clears throat> the death of the Lord. And so I want to try to interpret and understand a few th- things here from John chapter 1 in the context of the Lord's death. And it seems to me that the Gospel records as we have them are not biography in the sense that typically biography starts with the birth of a person and then goes through their development, their life, things they did, their death, and in the Lord's case, his resurrection. I think it would be true to say that the Gospel records are really accounts of his death with extended introductions. And out of all the four Gospels, you see that clearest in the Gospel of John, where well over half the the whole Gospel is talking about pretty well the last few weeks of, of the Lord's life. And I think the way that John talks about uh, the earlier life of Jesus is all really uh, in language which is leading up to this central event. The crucifixion is the central event, really, in in the the whole structure of, of the Gospels, just as the fact that the Lord died for me should be the central issue in, in our lives. Now, typically with, with John's Gospel, you can read what he's saying here, of course under inspiration, um, on a number of different levels. And I think that's a quite valid way of, of reading. So John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, where we talk about the Logos, the purpose. Yes, but what was the essential purpose of God in Christ. The essential purpose was to save us and that salvation was achieved through the death of the Lord on the cross. So that event which happened in in history you know nearly 2,000 years ago or whatever on a Friday afternoon on a day in April on a hill outside Jerusalem that was the climax, the, the central pivot in God's entire purpose. So when we read that in the beginning God had a plan, had a purpose, had a logos, that purpose was not simply Jesus, it was his salvation of us in Christ, which pivoted in in the death of his son. And that logos was very intimately connected with God. Because although Jesus died, and we know of course that Jesus is, is not the same as God, in a sense... God was in Christ reconciling the world under himself when the Lord died in that sense we can say that God was I I won't say of course that God died of course not in a personal sense but in the same way as each of us dies in the death of those that, that we love in that sense God was intimately connected with the death of his son then verse 3 all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made well I think that that's referring on, on one level to the, to the new creation that was brought about by the death of Jesus and it's John of course who records how when they pierced his side they came out blood and water and how he breathed his last to his assembled followers as they were, as John presents them standing around the cross so in that sense blood and water coming out of the side uh, this is very much the language of birth it's as if in his death there came forth a new creation and he breathed his spirit the spirit of his death on the cross into his assembled followers as they stand and stood around the cross 
So then the new creation was brought about by the death of Jesus. Now what does that mean in practice? Putting meaning into those words, <clears throat> I suggest that it's, it, it means that um, we are made into new people by what he did then, in that the spirit of Jesus, in his dying, in his self-sacrifice, that is what brings about a newness of life in you and me, insofar as we allow him there to be the guiding spirit in our lives, insofar as we breathe in, as Adam, as it were, breathed in the, the breath of God that was put into him, uh, insofar as we breathe in that spirit of self-sacrifice, of forgiveness, of endurance under all manner of provocation, which there was there in, in the Lord in his time of dying. And in that sense, verse 4, in him was life, <clears throat> and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it, and did not understand it. Well, that idea of Jesus as the light of the world, I would like to just go over to John chapter 3, where we read about this idea of Jesus as the light in the context of his death. John 3, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. Uh, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life so then Jesus was lifted up on a pole, on a piece of wood just as the snake was in the wilderness so that we might live and the allusion to that continues in John 3 verse 19 and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil so then what's the connection then between Jesus lifted up on a piece of wood as the snake was lifted up and him being the light of the world well we tend to understand light as that electric lamp bulb in, uh, in our room or that fluorescent tube here in our hall but that's not how people would have understood the light back in, in those days a light was a torch a torch as in a fire that was on the end of a pole that was a light and it has been the understanding of a light um, <clears throat> throughout most of human history until electricity came along when uh, in, in Philippi the jailer calls for a light he doesn't mean hey flick the switch somebody would have come running to him with a, a piece of wood or a pole and on the end of it fixed on the end of it there would have been some burning light and so the son of man lifted up on a pole <clears throat> as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness this leads on in a quite natural way in John's thinking here to Jesus as the light as the torch, as the flaming fire that is lifted up also on a piece of wood verse 20 everyone that does evil hates the light neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved but he that do does truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God and so there you have straight away a connection between the cross of Jesus, the Son of God lifted up as the light of the world uh, as a torch and self-examination that 
those who are of God come to that to that torch, that light, that that, that uh, fire lifted up on a piece of wood, so that their deeds may be made manifest. So then, we come as those who are of God. We come in our own minds to reconstruct the death of Jesus, Him lifted up there. And he is to be the light or the torch of our world. In other words, we are to understand life now in the context of what he did. That in that context, in the light of that, we now live our lives. In other words, every decision that we are faced with, every issue that we are asked to engage with, we are to do so in the light of the fact that he died for me. Now this is why him there, should be the, the image that we keep on coming back to. Whatever our issues are, the loss of loved ones, the sadness about our own sins and failures and dysfunctions, worry about this, that or the other, not enough money for this or that or the other, worry about how am I going to survive when I'm old and don't have a pension scheme, how am I going to get my kids who are now little, get them through school or whatever, all these things that people worry about, the millions of worries and issues that we have. She hurt me. He betrayed me. Whatever it might be. He there is the light. He is the fire which illuminates all those issues. And in the light of that, we are to understand them. That he there, covered in blood and spittle, died for me. I know he died for you, and he died for all of us who would be saved. But the wonderful nature of the whole thing is that he died for me. The Son of God, Paul says, Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now further, according to John 3.20, uh, 21, by coming to him there, our deeds are made manifest. Self-examination is really difficult. It really is hard for all of us and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 even if in our conscience we know nothing against ourselves we are not thereby justified because our conscience is not completely reliable in that sense the only justification is ultimately from, from God so then we are helped though in our self-examination by thinking of him there with all of course that it means uh, for the Son of God to have died for me and you and I standing in front of him that elicits this sense as John puts it in 21 there that our deeds may be made manifest we are manifest before him there this is why Paul says that we should examine ourselves as we break bread because the cross of Christ is the light, the torch, the fire that reveals us. And that is why he says those who do evil don't come to that light. The people who, the, the crowds who came to behold that sight turned away, actually. And I don't know if you know what I mean, but there is a sense in us which doesn't like reading the records of the crucifixion. If, like me, you, you read with the, uh, the Bible Companion, you're reading those records of the crucifixion at least eight times a year, at least. And yet, I notice a sense in me when I start to read that chapter to, to want to skate through the whole thing. There is 
a dislike somehow that we have about reading and meditating deeply upon the record. The same problem, I think, is in our mind-wandering at the time of the breaking of bread. So many people, myself included, admit to that problem, that we start thinking about, I don't know, the colour of that wall, the colour that wall's painted, or that chair is uh, broken and it's dangerous and uh, she's wearing a funny coloured jacket or he's, um, I don't know, he's got a hole in his trousers or whatever it might be. We have a a difficulty in, in keeping our focus upon him there. And if it was a study, a Bible study of something else, um, I don't know, Life of Samson, let's say, uh, or whatever it might be, or if we were sitting there listening to a lecture about something in our secular education, we wouldn't have that same problem. Why then, on a psychological basis, is there this difficulty that I, I observe we all have in keeping ourselves focused upon the crucified Jesus? And I think it's simply because it demands so much of us that really we are made manifest for whom we really are. And that is, of course, a very scary thing. So then, just going back to John 1, we said that uh, he talks here about the word, the logos, which I have suggested is uh, essentially to do with the death of Jesus, and that this was the light that shines in darkness. And verse 9 this true light lights every man that comes into the world well I, I take that again as referring to the spiritual uh, new creation verse 11 he came unto his own and his own received him not in that they killed him and then he goes on verse uh, 14 well he talks in 12 and 13 about uh, he enabled people to become the sons of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh but of God well again I I think there may be some reference there to the the pierced side of Jesus and the blood and water coming out as if his cross there was what brought forth the new creation and then verse 14 and the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth the only begotten of the Father. That is a, a phrase which uh, is usually used in the context of the crucifixion. Uh, for example, we just looked at John 3. Uh, okay, verse uh, 14 and 15 says that as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so Jesus was lifted up on the cross, because God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way. By allowing his son to be like the serpent lifted up on the, on the pole, God so loved the world in that way that he gave his only begotten son, that is, on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish. So then, <clears throat> this idea of the only begotten son and all this other verses, what one could look at, just chase it through in a concordance at your leisure. Uh, only begotten son tends to be a phrase that's used about the death of Jesus. So then, we beheld his glory. Well, John's Gospel is full of allusions to Moses. And I think here he is referring to how Moses cowered in the rock in Exodus 34 as the glory of Yahweh passed by and God declared his name and revealed his glory. 
And in Exodus 34, verse 6 in the RV, we, uh, we read that <coughs> he passed by in front of uh, Moses and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God full, full of grace and truth. And clearly here, John 1, verse 14, must surely be alluding to that. Incidentally, in Exodus 34, verse 6, I was reading um, that, that, that verse in the Latvian Bible, and I happen to notice that, I mean, I'm translating back now into English, but I happen to notice there in Exodus 34, 6, that it says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a man, a man full of grace and truth. And, of course, that just fits in uh, perfectly with the whole theme I'm trying to develop here. And I, I got home from the meeting after reading that. Um, I looked it out on the Internet, and, uh, yeah, it, it seems that there is one recension of the uh, Septuagint that says that. Well, I don't want to make a case from uh, argument about textual apparatus, but um, it, it seems to me that... Yahweh there, as he declared himself, and Moses is there cowering in the rock, whether or not he said Yahweh, a man full of grace and truth, clearly a prophecy then of Jesus, or whether he just said Yahweh, full of grace and truth. Um, this was pointing forward to John's experience when he says we, not just Moses, we were in the, in the, in the shoes of Moses, he says. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Now, this idea is alluded to elsewhere in, in John's Gospel, this idea of the name of God and the glory of God uh, being declared. And I'd like to just, uh, just have a look at a couple of, uh, a couple of those, those places. Uh, one of them is in John 17. Well, actually, let's start with John 12. John 12, 27 and 28. John 12, 27 and 28. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now the question is, when was that second glorifying of the name? It's clearly the language of, of Moses beholding the Father glorifying himself in front of him. You've got it again all through John 17. When Jesus is about to die, he's about to go out there and die, and he, he keeps saying, Father, glorify yourself in me. Glory, glory, glorify me, glorify yourself. And he's about to go and die. And I think that it was there on the cross that we have that second glorification. When, you know, John 12, uh, 28, when the voice from heaven says, I have both glorified my name and will glorify it again. Got it again, John 13, verse 32, in a rather uh, odd um, phrase, 31 and 32. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway, right now, glorify him. It's very odd, but it's the same, I mean, it's a complicated structure there, but um, he's saying the Son of Man has been glorified and God is glorified in him, but right now God is going to glorify himself in myself, right now. And he says this and he goes out and dies on the cross. So the glorification of the Father and the Son, I, I think, was in the death of, of Jesus. Now, John 17, at the end, 
makes this pretty clear, I think. John 17, 20, 26. Jesus says, this is his last words, the end of his prayer, just as he's about to go out and, and die, really. I have declared unto them thy name. This is absolutely Exodus 34. I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it. In the same way as he said, Father, you have glorified yourself in me, now do it again, please, right away. And he keeps on asking God, please glorify me. And the voice from heaven said, I have glorified you in John 12:28, and I will glorify it again. Jesus now says, I have declared your name, and I will declare it. I think that was in his death. That that death is being presented by John as the declaration of God's name. And this is not just a pretty idea. Uh, reading on in 26, uh, I've declared unto them by name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. So then, there in the naked body of Jesus, and when Paul said, or whoever wrote Hebrews, says that uh, if we crucify the Son of God afresh, you put him to an open or a naked shame, I, I would take that to uh, imply a naked crucifixion. In, in the naked body of Jesus in the tortured mind gasping out words of forgiveness, of grace, of comfort of encouragement, of acceptance there you have the essence of God the essence of his name the declaration of his name, now you know that his name is all that he stands for his character if you like the essence of God as declared there in Exodus 34 when the angel or whoever passes by in front of Moses as he cowers in the rock and declares Yahweh full or maybe a man full of grace and truth and forgiveness and judgment of sin etc this is what was uh, in its quintessence declared and manifested on the cross and if you get that if you see even something of it this is so Jesus says that the love wherewith God has loved me might be in you so then there on the cross there was the declaration of God's name it's John again who records uh, how the title was written over Jesus Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews and how it was written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin now if you write Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews in Hebrew it's four words it comes to Jesus, Nazareth, King, Jews you will come out with the uh, four letters of the, uh, the Yahweh name uh, transliterated into English like Y-H-W-H Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews in Hebrew would have used those words whereby the first letter of each word spelt that J-H-W-H, Y-H-W-H, whatever Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever and I think that's why when the Jews saw it they said, now nah, take it down because Pilate had been uh, railroaded, I would say, by the Jews, and he kind of didn't like it, of course. And I, I wonder if this was like his last laugh. And interestingly, when they, uh, they run off to Pilate and say, take that down, you know what, uh, how sensitive the, the Jews were about the, the writing even of God's name, let alone in that uh, context, um, over the head of Jesus. Uh, he, he sends them back a very uh, enigmatic answer when he says what I have written I have written and I wonder if the I have is what I have done I am who I am whether that itself is an allusion to the idea of 
the Yahweh name. I am that I am. I have been who I have been. I have done what I have done. I shall do what I shall do. I have written what I have written. So basically, there was there, as Jesus was lifted up on the on the cross, on that piece of wood, it's like there was a, a kind of notice over him that said, sort of, this is Yahweh. This is the name of Yahweh. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Jesus is God or was God or anything like that. I think you, uh, I think you understand that. I'm saying that there, in the death of Jesus, we see the quintessence, the bottom line, the absolute essence of God's name. And so when John says back in John 1 here, uh, 14, the word was made flesh, dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, full of grace and truth. He's saying, well, we were like Moses, hiding in the, uh, hiding in the rock and seeing this glory. So when he says we beheld his glory, I think that he has his mind there upon the death of Jesus. He's saying that we saw this. And if you look at John 19, verse 35, when he actually uh, records the death of Jesus, he says, verse 35, He that saw it, he that beheld it, this is the same word as beheld in John 1.14, He that beheld it bear record, and his record is true, and he knows that he says true, that you might believe. So he says, we beheld his glory. And at the end of his gospel, he talks about the crucifixion and he says, We saw, we beheld this, and it is true. So then, he goes on in verse 16, Of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. In other words, what was achieved in Jesus as he hung there is not unachievable in some sense in its, in its spirit, in its essence by us in our lives of self-control lives of self-sacrifice of, of giving, of sacrifice of, of, of working for the salvation of others of kindness of gentleness, of forgiveness even in the face of lack of repentance nastiness abusiveness this is all the essence of the cross because it is on that basis that, that we are saved so then <clears throat> in 1st of John you might remember that the, uh, the, the prologue of John's first letter is very similar to uh, the prologue to his gospel he, he uses very similar language and he, he talks about how um, verse uh, 1 verse 1 of 1st John he talks about that, that which we have looked upon, that which we have beheld and our hands have handled I wonder if that's a reference to them touching his body and looking at the marks in his body after the resurrection uh, of the word of life the life was manifested and we have seen it the life was declared and we have seen it and we bear witness this is absolutely similar to John 19.35 where he talks about uh, there he was at the uh, crucifixion he that saw it bear record bear witness and his witness is true and he knows that he says true that you might believe that which we have seen and heard declare we we testify unto you 
that you might have fellowship with us. So then, again, I think he's talking about his experience of the crucified Jesus. And that is to be the basis of our fellowship. If you have looked upon him there, wherever you are in this world, not just geographically, I don't mean wherever you are, in your life, in the mess you've made, in the successes you've had, in the, in the strange and unique path that you have had, and you get it. You get the spirit of all this. And if I, in my life, in my unique path in life, see the same, you and I are bound together. This is why John says, we, I declare this to you, that we might have fellowship together. There's only one other place in the Gospels where we read about this idea of the glory being declared, being manifested. And it's in the record of the, the Transfiguration. Luke 9 verse 32, they saw his glory. But what was the context? They spoke of his exodus, of his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. So it doesn't just mean, you know, they saw his glory as in, yeah, they saw a bright light and they got scared. Moses and Elijah were there talking about the death that he was to die. And so in that sense, the declaration of his glory, even at the transfiguration, was in the, in the context of the death, the exodus which he was to accomplish. So then back in John 1, 17, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. When did the law of Moses end? Colossians, he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So the coming of grace and truth by Jesus was what ended the law of Moses, and it specifically ended it in his death on the cross. And then 18, again you've got another reference back to Exodus 34. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, and we said that's a phrase often used about the cross, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now this, you know, this is Exodus 34, Moses saying, I want to see your face, and God says, no, you can't see me, because you know, no man has seen God at any time. But he says, I will declare my name unto you. And this declaration of God's name there in Exodus 34 is now the declaration of him that there is in Jesus and that declaration of the name the manifesting of the name the glorifying of the name I have suggested was specifically in the death of, of Jesus so then all of God's word all his words all the ideas that there are in God the essence of God was made flesh, was made uh, concrete and visible uh, in a human form in the very public and open and naked crucifixion of his son. I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love which God had for him, for Jesus, might be in us. So now we, we come to, to make all this uh, kind of theology practical. That we, in this quiet half hour, are meditating, and should meditate now, about him there. We are, as I've said, to reconstruct in our own minds, or try to, him there. It doesn't matter, in one sense, if you get the slight details of the reconstruction wrong, but the important thing is that we soberly try to imagine him there, what the smells were, what the sounds were what he looked like 
as I say, it doesn't matter if we get it wrong, but the important thing is that we try. And you and I stand there before him. And in that sense, we stand before judgment. In Revelation 5, you have this uh, vision of Jesus sitting on the throne. And yet, as I understand it, sort of visually, silhouetted against that judgment throne vision, there is a lamb as if it's just been slain. I imagine that it's a kind of silhouette of a freshly slain lamb silhouetted against Jesus sitting on the judgment throne. Because when we come before him there, we have a foretaste of the day of judgment. And so I think that really all our issues come to their final term, to their final resolution with him there. That standing before him, can I continue in sin? That his grace and self-sacrifice might abound? God forbid. Can I stand there with anger and hatred in my heart against my brother? It cannot be. Can I stand there proud and selfish? It cannot be. And more positively, if I stand there as in my mind's eye before him, as I and you will stand in man's last end before him in the last day of the day of judgment, I cannot be passive, and you cannot be passive. This is not just an idea in the mind. He is real. He is alive. He is there in heaven, looking in your heart and my heart. And you just cannot be passive to him. He died for me, for you. That we should no longer live unto ourselves, but unto him who loved us, who died for us, and rose again. Thank you.